0: From WPVM LP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell.
1: And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Muzz.
2: The apple awaited back when we had some trouble, back when your friends were still cold.
1: So, uh, growing up in Clay County, I bet you know a thing or two about tomato sandwiches, Catherine.
0: <laughs> well, when I was six years old, I did call them tomato sandwiches.
1: Mater sandwiches? Mater.
0: Yeah. I used to have a big, thick accent that yeah? definitely matched the the thickness of tomato sandwiches back then. <laughs> huh. but, um, but, yeah, I... I did not grow up on tomato sandwiches. It was not um, it was not a staple in my single mother household. Growing up, we had spaghetti and tacos and that kind of exotic fare, if you will. Um, so it wasn't until I got older, when I was a you know closer to to preteen and teenager years, that I really started to appreciate tomatoes.
1: Did your family garden?
0: Um, no, my, you know, my mom was, uh, she was a nurse who worked night shifts in the OR and ER and, um, and then, you know, worked in uh, hospice after that. And so she just never had the the time and resources to have a garden of her own, which, um, you know, I know that she had one when she was younger and I tried to kind of reignite that legacy when I got older too.
1: Yeah. There was one year where I remember my dad, like, hardcore gardening. And I think it was because my brother was really into it. And I think he kept the garden up for a couple years after that. But there was only one year where I was living at home. And, uh, yeah, he would bring the tomatoes in and he would slice them and then just salt them and eat them right there, just the tomato. And and before that, he'd always make a tomato. I, I feel like we didn't do super southern foods when I was growing up. Yeah. Despite being Appalachia hill people for like four generations deep, but one of the things we really did often was uh was the tomato sandwich. Like every summer he'd he'd go to the farmers market or something and bring back some like heirloom tomatoes and do these like really decadent mayonnaise drenched sandwiches <laughs> that I uh that I still love and emulate to this day. But I do mine with the bread that I make at home, so it's not exactly that white bread, mm. mushy goodness that I remember growing up. But I'm just not going to buy white bread at this point.
0: Yeah, you know it's such a it's such a treat now. It's almost like a dessert dish for me. Um, having a tomato sandwich with that that white bread and um, having just a little bit of Duke's mayonnaise because. I'm sorry, but no other mayonnaise is going to do There is no other mayonnaise. There is no other mayonnaise. (laughs) Um, But I distinctly remember the first time I took a bite of a fresh tomato out of a garden. And that, that taste was phenomenal. And that's what really turned me on to tomato sandwiches was just capturing the freshness and the juiciness of something like that. And having it soak into that white bread for me was such a natural sweetness, you can't capture it in any other way or form.
1: Yeah, I gotta admit, I I ate a tomato sandwich two days ago for lunch. That was like my entire lunch was just a bunch of tomatoes on some Mm. bread and mayonnaise, and it was exactly what I wanted.
3: Yeah. Anyway,
1: (laughs) here's Brooke German reading a story about tomato sandwiches by Lauren Maxwell.
4: Like every Southerner, I know where to buy tomatoes. I don't waste time, especially in July or August, with anything less than decadent. Cut your tomatoes, sprinkle with salt if you're rushed, eat with a knife and fork if you're me. With more time on your hands, toast two slices of bread and cover them all the way to the edge with Duke's mayonnaise. Add high summer slices, understanding that cool fruit and warm toast will meld into something resplendent and rare. Use salt and be generous with pepper. Your sandwich gets nothing else if you're a purist. And most Southerners are. Bite. Taste. Remember where you came from. Relish the whole, somehow greater than its parts, just like the South itself. When I left South Carolina in 2007, I swore I'd never return. I didn't introduce myself as Southerner in any setting. If anything... I was ashamed of my home's reputation. Why then, am I still obsessed with tomato sandwiches a decade and a half later? I suspect the answer begins somewhere in the summer of 2006 when I house sat for two college professors in upper South Carolina. My voice teacher lived in the same neighborhood and like a true native, she told me to take tomatoes from her yard any I wanted. Put them on white bread with mayonnaise and salt, she added. I followed her advice, though I only had wheat and it worked just fine. Coming off of years of cafeteria food, my teacher sparked a childhood memory I didn't know I had. Tomato sandwiches are the simplest southern lunch. Arguably, they're also the best. I ate one every day for the remaining stretch of summer. Still... A year later, as a 22-year-old signing up for hopes, dreams, and student loans, I finally left the South and was eager to be gone. Graduate school made me a resident of Baltimore, Maryland for three years. I had a kitchen for the first time. Intrigued, my experiments in cooking began. Pasta, stuffed eggplant, and vegetable soup. A pizza-making party with friends. Heart cookies mailed to my mother on her birthday. Though my cooking improved, tomato sandwiches never crossed my mind. Many students went home for the summer, but not me. There was nothing for me there. In Baltimore, I made friends, went to the bar, worked at the library and the mall. I discovered the farmer's market downtown, right underneath the expressway. When people asked where I was from, I answered with a little pang of shame. I'll never go back, I sometimes added. In Baltimore, I ate thin crust pies from a shop called Iggy's, burger cookies drenched in chocolate, and enough crab cakes to last a lifetime. I never bought fresh local tomatoes. In my final months there, I took a new boyfriend to a rooftop where we had crabs and seafood caught that morning by our server's grandfather. Along with the food, they gave us lemon, Old Bay, and a pitcher of beer. (sighs) Life was simple and exhilarating. Just like our lunch. Soon, I followed that boyfriend to Cleveland, where we would become engaged the following spring. In Ohio, my diet changed again. We lived in Little Italy, where we ate handmade donuts, fresh spaghetti, and pizza sprinkled with so much pepper, we've been talking about it since. There were trips to West Side Market, where we bought cheese from vendors who'd been there for 150 years. We found a French spot for special occasions. Our Cleveland kitchen was the first one we shared. There have been seven more since. And while in it, we began what would become a lifelong tradition of feeding each other thoughtfully and well. Our year in Cleveland marked the height of the Great Recession. And despite having four and a half degrees between us, despite having been told it would all work out if we did the right things, it felt impossible to find the work we needed. After nine months in Ohio, I got a job that seemed promising in Vermont. Too young and hopeful to notice the red flags, we packed a truck and headed that way. We were only in that tiny state for four months, and though it was summer, there were no time for tomatoes. There was only stress. I ate cafeteria food and said a prayer of thanks when that chapter concluded. Desperate for answers and looking for work, we left Vermont that fall and headed in the same direction I'd sworn off years earlier. As the South encroached upon us, we considered where to go. Back to Atlanta, my husband's hometown, or perhaps Nashville, where we had connections. We explored it all. After three weeks in my mother-in-law's spare bedroom, I got a job in Greenville, South Carolina, a small city nestled at the base of Appalachia. South Carolina was the last place I wanted to end up, but it seemed we had no choice. One year led to another in the South, and despite career changes, we stayed put. Greenville rests at the lower tip of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and that alluring silhouette kept us occupied longer than anticipated. Still when traveling, I didn't like being asked where I was from. I'm not what you think, I wanted to say, as I remembered my evangelical upbringing, chaotic and disappointing. I'd abandoned those roots the second I'd left home. Paired with the constant invitation of the mountains was the opportunity, a place like Greenville offered, for us to place our feet on the ground. It wasn't what we imagined, but we were able to pay our bills. And after those harrowing recession years, that felt like enough. Every time Greenville's size and homogenous nature started to feel confining, we got creative and tried something new. We traveled and read books and made friends. In the years outside the South, and even after I returned, people were often surprised to learn I'm a native. You have no accent, they exclaimed. Yeah, I I know it. It disappeared, I responded, blaming it all on the diction classes that come with two opera degrees. Videos from childhood proved that at one time my accent was strong, and I began to wonder if my education had indeed erased it, or if it might have been my resentment. Though I recognized strengths in Southern communities, I was also painfully aware of where they fell short, and where they'd failed in the past. After my strange childhood, I'd dreamed of a progressive and urban lifestyle— My family ties are limited, so I assumed my connection to the South was, too. After a few months in Greenville, I made my way to the local farmer's market, just like i had done in Baltimore and Cleveland. The year was 2012, and the slow food movement was rising in the Carolinas. In other words, heirloom tomatoes were everywhere. Still on a student budget, I figured out visiting the market closer to noon meant cheaper tomatoes. Before I knew it, with those discounted heirlooms as a gateway, the flavors of the South elbowed their way back into my kitchen, and eventually, my heart. I impressed my soon-to-be husband with staples from childhood. Vegetables were better than any I'd had before, grown right down the road. The tomatoes from the farmer's market, sliced, salted, candied, or roasted, never left us lacking. At some point, dizzy with summer's bounty, my old reflexes kicked in. I pulled out my toaster for a tomato sandwich. It all rushed over me then. How tomatoes from my grandfather's garden appeared constantly at our back door as a kid. How they were bursting with flavor and how BLT night always felt like a treat for my mom. Everyone I'd known in the South used food to take care of each other, no matter how much trouble they had getting along. Before I knew it, I was eating tomato sandwiches every day, again for lunch. Cherokee purple, beefsteak slicers, golden giants, I tried them all. There in the kitchen, I found my way back home, both to myself and the South. In a region fraught with brokenness and political tension, the South's favorite sandwich offers some comfort. It reminds me that food, making it for others, eating and sharing it, is a system of hope and care. It links me to my mother, my mother's parents and their parents before them, even if it's one of the only things we have in common. No matter how many times our identity shifts, our senses never change. The things we ate as a child, sometimes in spite of ourselves and almost always relating to place, provide a sense of belonging that can't be denied. More than one thing can be true at a time. I can be a southerner, the kind who eats tomato sandwiches every day and feeds friends to show she cares, but remain weary of our past. This sandwich, summer's fleeting succulent treat, is brilliant in its simplicity. It's a reminder that sometimes we can let things be easy. We can accept them as they are, beauty and shortcomings all included. When I ask myself if I'm actually Southern, the tomato sandwich seems to have the answer. And it doesn't let me forget.
0: That was Brooke German reading Lauren Maxwell's What the Tomato Sandwich Taught Me.
5: If you need me, I'll be. If you need me, I'll be there on the phone. It's something that I'll have to remember when I feel alone. Yeah, I love all of the people in my life. It's the thing I'm usually too shy to tell.
0: The Dirty Span Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace, strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer.
6: Guess we're leaving town again, we're moving out and moving in Gotta break the news to all my friends, but they won't care They'll just find another face to fall behind and take my place To run well past second base and just stand there The dream sick on a summer night in a fall Ring around the moon Better get home soon Poison oak and poison ivy Dirty jokes that blew right by me Mama curling up beside me Crying to herself Why can't daddy just come home Forget whatever he did wrong He's in a hotel all alone go on a summer night in a folding long chair I'm still packing up my room, gotta get home soon Different friends in a different town I'll finally be free Call you both some holiday Tell you why I moved away Say everything's gonna be okay Then come see me A dream sickle on a summer night In a bowling lawn chair Daddy's howling at the moon Better get home soon Lightning in an evening sky in my mama's red hair Hearts breaking through the springtime, breaking in a Breaking in the Breaking, energy. breaking energy.
1: you grow up with? For me, it was the black-eyed pea, or green beans. I find that what people immediately think of when you reference a bean greatly depends on where they are from. As a farmer in Coopville, Washington, Georgie Smith did her part to help preserve an heirloom of the Pacific Northwest, the prized and increasingly rare Rockwell bean. Here's Olivia Springer reading her story, The Baked Bean Wars.
7: Coopville is a tiny town, a historic seafaring village nestled on the inner northern curve of a meandering Pacific Northwest Island. Its population is small, just 1,831 as of last census, and overwhelmingly nice. Until you mess with the Rockwells. The Rockwell is an attractive bean, creamy white and pleasantly round, with a smattering of maroon on the hillum side. That's the bean belly button for those who are unfamiliar with bean body parts. It's not a floozy pink bean like the plump Lena Cisco bird egg, or a 70s bad paint job bean like the baby poop mustard and red tiger eye kidney, or boringly staid and proper like the barn brick red and white Jacob cattle bean. The Rockwell is an attractive bean that you just plain enjoy looking at, until you cook it. Then you like eating it even better. So does everybody in Coopville. At one point in my varied farming career, I had achieved what seemed to be the ultimate pinnacle. I brought to harvest about 2,000 pounds of Rockwells. It was, by all accounts, about 10 times more Rockwell beans than had been grown in Coopville for years. Once quite abundant and easily available around town, Rockwells never achieved commercial success and became a scarce commodity as the farm families, who traditionally maintained them, moved off their land. By the time I started growing them, only three of my neighbors still actively planted them and that was mostly just for their personal use. So my big Rockwell harvest created a minor media sensation. I made the front page of the local news with a waterfall of rockwells pouring out of the auger of our 1964 John Deere 45 Combine. The night the paper came out, I had several messages waiting from one of the town residents. One was from the mother of a high school classmate. The sort of woman you wanted on your side? Never, ever the other way around. Georgie, I saw the paper. You have rockwells. Are you going to be at the market with them? I need rockwells the church potluck next message Georgie I'm sending Jack over for Rockwells. he's coming tomorrow I need to get my Rockwells Georgie Jack is coming well you just better you better have some Rockwells for him I don't care if they are already sold to your restaurants or whatever I need those Rockwells the church you know Jack is coming Jack is coming. I told him to get my Rockwells. He will get my Rockwells. I replayed the messages for my husband. He agreed. I was just threatened, ever so nicely, over dry beans. Then I ran right back outside and packaged up some Rockwell beans for Jack. Because, well, I'm not entirely stupid. The history of the Rockwell in Coopville has always been a bit murky, But one thing everybody agreed upon. Elisha Rockwell brought it to the area in the late 1800s. Then he left town and nobody cared. But they did love that bean. The Rockwell is uniquely suited to growing in the Coopville area. It is a short season bean with the ability to germinate in cool temperatures. In a growing region surrounded on either side by the 50 degrees if you're lucky Salish Sea, Growing quickly and in cool weather is a decided advantage. In fact, I grew many other heirloom dry beans over many years and I never found a varietal that germinated as reliably or matured as quickly as the Rockwell. But its flavor, delicately rich with a savory broth and its texture, creamy and thin skin, yet substantial, keeping its form in all but the most abusive recipes is what really seals the deal. The Rockwell is a class of bean often referred to as the Barlotti bean. The most commonly known is the classic Cranberry bean, what many, quickly corrected in Coopville, mistake the Rockwell to be. Barlotti beans are famous for making cassoulet, a French bean stew that reigns supreme on fall and winter menus. Even Julia Child sung the praises of the cassoulet, Cassoulet, that best of bean feasts is everyday fare for a peasant but ambrosia for a gastronome though its ideal consumer is a 300 pound blocking back who has been splitting firewood non-stop for the last 12 hours on a sub-zero day in Manitoba the people of Coopville would argue that there's no better cassoulet bean than their beloved Rockwell only they call it Rockwell baked beans and they're darn serious about that. In Coopville Every Sunday at noon, the Methodist church bell tolls. It's been via the church, most specifically the weekly Sunday potluck, that's a love and fierce competition for the Rockwell truly took hold. If you ever happen to get one of the old ladies of Coopville talking about the beans away from the ears of the peers, then you'll catch an earful. The Shermans, they put white sugar in their Rockwells. Can you believe that? White sugar. And the Ingalls, Marion told me they use ketchup. Now why would they do that? Ketchup? Rockwells don't need ketchup. They're not a navy bean. Might as well just dump your baked beans straight out of the can, if that's what you're going to do. But that was only out of earshot of polite society, of course. Instead, every Sunday after service, they would chitter and chat and line up their earthenware pots of gently steaming baked beans on the church buffet line. Every family matron proudly bears their family's favorite Rockwell recipe. Let she who takes home the first empty pot win. Not that they would ever brag about it. Hence why my in-town neighbor was so keen to get her hands on some real, honest-to-goodness Rockwell beans. For the church potluck, you see. Gotta have those Rockwells.
8: Why should I care about his heart? We are just steps apart from strangers anyway. How did it even get to this? Why should I care about that kiss? Why can't I just not give a shit? rock girl. Singing in a punk rock band Now I'm just a country be a punk.
0: strangest things about work is the way it begins to absorb you. The ritual of showing up to your job every day tends to have this side effect of creeping into every wrinkle in our brains until our work kind of becomes a major part of us. It becomes us. So what happens when that job starts to eat away at you? For New Jersey writer, Erica Landis, things took a turn when a job that helped her get over a
9: major crisis Became one. Three weeks after losing my only child in a swimming pool accident, I began working at a liquor store. It's not where you'd expect a grieving mother to end up. I had worked at a small Pennsylvania winery in my 20s, but there was a major difference between a gravel paved country winery and a highway liquor store in northern New Jersey. It was an attractive store, filled with wooden wine racks, and there was none of the fluorescent lighting normally seen in big liquor stores. This place just felt different. Warm, friendly, with great co-workers. I felt safe to be broken there. I threw myself into studying regions, appellations, grape varietals, and all the stories behind the wines and whiskeys, the winemakers and distillers. Learning all this information kept my mind spinning with something other than the torturous thoughts of the death of my son. I quickly got to know the customers. I knew what they drank and how quickly they drank it. As their visits became more frequent, my co-workers and I began to discuss the downward spirals we were silently witnessing. Customers offered up unsolicited excuses for their frequent visits. A sweet, red-nosed grandmother would come in for her second pint of vodka within a few hours. It was always for penne and vodka sauce. She'd tell me her grandkids asked her to make it practically every day. I'd jokingly tell her, it's okay, I get paid not to judge. There were lots of instances of unexpected company and forgotten urgent housewarming gifts for those customers who made a second daily visit. I always kept my smile on my face. I always kept my words kind and comforting. Along with the habitual drinkers, there were many who just loved wine. I greeted so many customers with hugs and kisses as I recommended new wines, getting to know their tastes and budgets. We got to know each other as people. I selectively shared the story of losing my son and they told me about their lives and families. It was a parade of human stories, and I found most of them very interesting. I began putting the pieces of my life back together slowly. Chasing pregnancy through multiple fertility treatments was finally successful. When I thankfully became pregnant two years after I began working there, my growing belly was a happy and humorous sight in a liquor store. And when my daughter was born, healthy and perfect, Small amounts of healing started to sneak into my brain, replacing the shock of losing it all in July of 2010. Along with my husband, we felt like a family again. Smiles and hope slowly replaced fear and oppressive sadness. When my daughter was three months old, I went back to work in the liquor store that was my saving grace at my most broken time. But things started to change. I spent more time on the cash register rather than on the sales floor. It seemed now to only be a constant parade of hardcore alcoholics, waiting outside the door for us to open and then rushing in through the door a few minutes before we closed. I began to give them nicknames and turned them into amusing Facebook posts for my friends to read. Fireball Guy came practically skipping into the store up to three times a day. He shouted an annoyingly joy-filled, "Hello!" as he put his cinnamon whiskey mini-bottles and pints down on the counter. Sweatpants guy loaded up on cheap vodka and cranberry juice daily, always breathing heavy. It looked like his drawstring pants fell off as soon as he walked in his front door. Pocketful of change guy was always on an important phone call as he counted out his change in small piles for 99-cent bottles of vodka. He'd be back within an hour. He'd have more change and still be on a very important phone call. And then there were the moms so many moms throwing little bottles into their purses or gym bags the phrase of there but for the grace of god go i ran through my head on a constant loop their drinking scared me i developed a false sense of superiority while wondering myself if all those little bottles actually had the answer to the undertones of sadness i felt daily grief is non-linear and tricky as hell It was the same faces every day. And as much as I joked about getting paid not to judge, I judged. I judged hard. And that made me feel even worse. I developed feelings I'm not proud of towards these customers. I became dismissive. I'd reached a limit as to what I could absorb. I wanted to just enjoy my second chance at motherhood while trying to come to terms with my own grief over losing my son. After almost ten years at this job, I'd worked my way up to a good hourly wage. I I still needed this job. How could I make it less toxic? I didn't want to be privy to this world of alcoholism or the sadness that came with it. I'd developed something called compassion fatigue. According to Psychology Today, compassion fatigue is typically experienced amongst healthcare workers and first responders— But with pictures and descriptions of the world's traumas at the touch of our fingertips, compassion fatigue is spreading like an epidemic. I was feeling all the symptoms and going through all the stages before I even knew what the symptoms and stages actually were. The defined stages of compassion fatigue in the workplace fit my experience to a T. Enthusiasm. I was committed and excited at the beginning. I felt like I made a difference. Irritability. I mocked others. I caught myself in inappropriate humor and avoided customers when I could. Withdrawal. I no longer took pride in my work. Unmotivated, I felt full of complaints. Quitting. Depressed. Frustrated. I had become impatient and disgusted. Even angry. I was ready to quit. This job had become an uncomfortable mix of painfully real life for others while dealing with the evolution of my own grief. Balancing my own emotions while seeing others in a daily downward spiral became hard work. Along with the actual job of stocking shelves and bagging bottles, I became a sponge for so much sadness and dysfunction. Friends would tell me, "'It's just a job,' or, "'Shut off the feelings when you walk in the door.'" I know there are more intensely emotional jobs than working in a liquor store. My admiration for healthcare workers and first responders is monumental. But in the age of self-care and the importance of mental health awareness, we all have our limitations. After recognizing compassion fatigue, I needed to start making some healthy decisions to help me cope while still earning my paycheck. I never expected to be pondering my life's balance at the cash register of a liquor store. I said to a co-worker, "'This job has made me into a person I don't like.'" She replied, "'But you're a very nice person in real life.'" I took a month off. I put some distance between me and them. I surrounded myself with the people that mattered. Even though I had the happy ending of having my daughter, losing a child never leaves you whole, and my empty spots needed to be guarded with all the energy I could gather— Every day I made sure I understood that I cannot save the world. I gave myself permission to be broken again.
1: Courtney Dejanara Robinson reading Erica Landis's Compassion Fatigue. You can revisit that story on our webpage dirty-spoon.com
10: some kids
0: By our underwriter, the Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by chef William Dissant a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm to table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer.
1: The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2020.
0: All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show, and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau.
1: Music in this episode by Muzz, The Sex Pistols, Second Grade, Jason Isbell, The Beach Boys, Sarah Siskind, Christian Lee Hudson, Nicole Atkins, Goldman, John Bryan, Etta Baker, Charles Rumback and Riley Walker, Stefan Rimble, and Otley Ovarson. Katherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing.
0: Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVMLP Asheville. Always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon.